G'day there, everyone, and welcome to this bonus episode of Beyond the Club. Every now and again, Sam Elliott and I tackle Amanda Vicek's 81 Determinants of Fun. We've got five more to share with you right now. We're going to get it straight into it, Sam. You say that one of the most important determinants of fun, one of the 81, copying moves and tricks that professional athletes do. Love this one. What's fun about it? Well, let me start with asking you a question, Hooky. When you were growing up, did you have an idol in sport, a role model, and you actually wanted to copy something that they did? Well, it was worse than that for me, Sam. I actually remember doing in drama class at about year four a whole host of impersonating my favourite cricketers. And it wasn't just one or two. There was about a dozen. I think I got pulled off stage before I could get through all of them. I was so focused on it. So I get this 100%. Yeah, absolutely. So for me, Tony Modra. I was a young boy growing up in Mount Gambia. Every weekend, it'd be common for me to dress up in my crow's get up. And it wasn't just to go and kick the footy, but I wanted to be like Tony Modra. Now, when you kick the the ball by yourself... Could be the hanger, but that's a bit hard when you're kicking by yourself. So it was the banana. Oh, right. banana. And it was not just his move, but it was something that I thought, that's amazing. And I practiced and practiced because I wanted to be like him. The science behind that is really simple from a developmental perspective, especially with young children. So during adolescence, it's a prime period for identity exploration. So children are kind of pushing the boundaries and leaning in and out of different types of behaviors. It's almost like trying things on to see how it sort of fits, how does it work for them. But it's also a prime period for development. So some children don't know what they are capable of, but when they see a role model or a a peer or someone at an elite level, a professional athlete, do something, it just extends their boundaries of what they think is possible. So it's really, really important to have role models, but more importantly, to practice copying those tricks. It could be a kickflip on a skateboard. It could be the banana at footy, but it's something that you see from a learning perspective. That similarity promotes motivation. So if you're a actual coach, you would actually invite that into part of your training program is to say, who do you love and why do you love them? Right, let's go and recreate that environment and see if you can pull off the stunt. Absolutely. I think it's a great way to start or even finish training. Okay. There might be at the, the Bedford Park Bullfrogs. Ben, who's your favorite player? Oh, it right now it's it's Lance Franklin. Awesome. What's his signature move that you love? I love when he takes five bounces along the boundary then kicks a goal. You're going to recreate that. Let's go and go. practice it. Brilliant. Uh, really good. Love that. I think that's a fantastic idea and that any coach can just incorporate that straight away. Just as you said, who's your favorite player? Why do you like him? Let's go and do exactly why you like him in your own way. Beautiful. Brilliant. A coach who knows a lot about sport. That can often be a bit of a drain, can't it? A bit boring? Yeah, it can be. This one has a double-edged sword because, of course, our listeners are not necessarily coaches that know a lot about the sport that they are volunteering for. So a quick note to say that if you are a coach out there at the grassroots and you're doing your best and you have no idea about the sport, keep going because you do play a super critical role. What we are highlighting, though, is that if there are parents or coaches in that role that know a lot about the sport that they are actually coaching, it actually is the first point of building trust between the playing group, the the players, and the coach. And that's really important because it can determine a couple of things. Number one, it can determine the way in which players perceive the coach in terms of integrity. So if there's ever a a contentious moment across the season around selection or around decision-making as a coach, 
Coaches that know a lot about the sport tend to earn the benefit of the doubt a little bit sooner than others that may have an absence of experience. So that's really, really important. But there's also what we might call a pedagogical advantage. Okay. And so let's say in cricket, I'm not huge in cricket. I can I could play, play some backyard with you, but let's say in cricket, we're training not, you know, during the week. If you've got cricket experience as a coach, if you've played the game, if you've umpired the game, if you've coached the game and you've got intimate experience, then when it comes to coaching young children especially, you can seize these teachable moments quicker than, say, the average person that is filling in. And so, for example, you might notice that there is a player that is bowling in the nets and for whatever reason, they're really having a hard time of it, okay? And coaches with experience can seize that and not say, right, let's throw someone else in because I don't want Sam to be overwhelmed. You might be able to modify the task. You might be able to provide a piece of advice that can help that child through that experience. So pedagogical advantage is something that comes from knowing your sport. I've got a couple of issues with that. Firstly, I feel like if you are a coach who knows a fair bit about sport and cricket in particular, that you can only relate. You you spend too much time relating your own experience rather than what would necessarily be beneficial for the person themselves. So what worked for me may not necessarily work for Sam Elliott as he's growing up as part of the Bedford Park Bullfrogs. That would be my first concern with that. Point number two, and this is more a question than a point, If you are someone who is coaching and you don't have a deep established route within the game, do you think it is beneficial to spend some time at night, you know, when you go to bed and instead of reading the Mills and Boone novel that you should be reading a bit of a history of the particular sport you're coaching? Yeah, it doesn't have to be reading, but it's certainly an advantage to be closer to the sport that you're involved in. I think we can agree with that. But you are also right that there is a silver lining to being intimately involved in the sport, but there's also a double-edged sword, which is that if you can only see sport through one particular gaze, Mm. then of course that might be quite a narrow way of approaching the coaching rather than a much more open-ended, broader consideration of all the different things that might be fun for children. And what we're highlighting here, this is episode 10 of fun. We've done so many of these, but because there are so many different sources of fun for every child out there, it's not about saying this one works for everyone, but this definitely is a source of fun for some children. So if you know your sport as a coach, then that can often generate trust and that trust can often and give you the benefit of the doubt when things start to become difficult across the course of the season. Okay, excellent. And some of the points are really well made. I mean, I think I know a reasonable amount about cricket, but if someone comes to me asking me spin bowling, then I do feel like my knowledge is very, very narrow and having a capacity to talk to people about batting or medium pace bowling that wasn't very impressive, then I was yeah, really adept at that. Let's talk about playing in tournaments because I love this. I mean, most sports are a season-long tournament, but are you talking about specific short, sharp events over the course of a weekend that may be something a bit more special? It's all of the above. It can be playing state football. It can be playing in a final series at the end of the home and away season. It could be being selected for an interleague team. So there's many different examples, but when you play in these exclusive tournaments that are really reserved for, you know, at the end of the season or for players that perhaps move into a talent pathway, uh, really fun. And it's not necessarily the games that are fun. It's the experience of being involved in the tournament. So a new 
playing kit, new socks, a new jumper, the opportunity to go away for the weekend. These are things that are quite fun for children. But playing in the tournaments itself are also a source of fun. And there's a couple of reasons why. And I think we can all agree with this. If you are at the Bedford Park Bullfrogs in the under-14s and you go through a whole season of winning and losing and winning and losing and eventually we qualify for the finals and we play well in that first final, we might not win. Maybe we do. But in that specific moment, in that game, in that tournament, we've actually met our challenge point where our skill and our ability as a team is matched by the level of challenge of the the game or the environment. So when those things perfectly align, what the research tells us is that we tend to be in a state of flow. We tend to be situated within a an environment that at highest level of motivation and attention can be afforded. That's really crucial. If you go into a final and you know you're going to win by 35 goals, it's fun, but is it really fun? And this is sort of the point that we're making here, that playing in tournaments where there is a relatively even possibility of winning or losing, that challenge point is a source of fun for children. Okay, it's, yeah. Funny, I'm, as you're talking, I'm thinking back to my junior football career. Career, not a career, but just my time playing junior footy. And the one ga- the games that stand out to me were parts of lightning carnivals. So you know those games that were like, I don't know, eight-minute halves or something like that. I seem to recall those better than games that I played over the course of a season as a eight, nine, 10, 11-year-old. It's interesting that that's what sort of stuck in my subconscious a bit more than the, the week-in, week-out game of footy, those special sorts of little tournaments. Yep, absolutely. The, Maybe the something li- in it. The Lightning Carnivals, I think, um, I'm not sure if they exist anymore, but the I, I completely understand what you're coming from. And they do trigger memories of, geez, that was fun. Mm. That was that was, that was was an exciting moment. So there's something about, I think there's also maybe something to be said about the social capital that comes with being involved in a Lightning Carnival mm. or being selected for a team. It is There's a level of social capital that I think a lot of people would appreciate, which is interesting because social capital is associated with, you know, outside of sport, with increased feelings of happiness, better job security. So there's actually some really good evidence around why we should want to feel good about the things that we're doing and and the people that we're doing it with. And sport is certainly a vehicle for that. Point number four today, playing well during a game. I mean, that's slapstick obvious that that would be fun. What's the science behind it? Yeah, really it comes down to a couple of things. One is mastery. So we feel good at doing things we're good at. So you're good at golf. I think. I've never played with you, but I assume that you're reasonably good at golf. Well, it's relative. There are some people that I'm better than, and there's a lot of people that are better than me, Sam. I don't think you're one of them, though. I'm going to hazard a guess. uh, Yes, let's leave my golfing (laughs) competence out of this. But let's talk about this. So playing well during a game, it is obvious. The science behind this is... At a, at a rudimentary level, it's really easy to explain. So the reason why winning and playing well feels good is because it actually is related to a chemical response in our body. And so when you think about neurology and the neurotypical pathway of performance, it's related to a release of what we call dopamine. And so this is something that we can all relate to, which is linked to feelings of positivity. Okay, so that's really, really important. And when we win, we produce more dopamine. So we feel more positive. So that feeling is something that we actually want to experience again and again, that's why at quarter time when you're playing well, you cannot wait to go out to the second quarter because it feels good to be playing well. It feels good to touch the ball early. So really, really important. But what I actually think was really interesting on this point, I was, I was thinking about this prior to today's recording, was some interesting research about playing well. And there was this really interesting study in 1992, the Barcelona Olympics. And they were actually, these researchers were analysing the smiles or the facial expressions of those who had finished first 
second and third. So podium, finish, medalists at the Olympics. And what they found is that there was big smiles on those that were first. Makes sense. They've, they've won gold. They are the best in the world. Well done. They also looked at the bronze medalists. Very happy as well. Smile on their face. Happy to be on the podium. Then there was the silver medalists. What do you think their facial expressions were? I presume you're going to say that there was a dip. Bronze, down to silver, and then back up to gold. Is that right? This is exactly the point, and it's it, it's fascinating because why I'm why I'm raising this is that if if the silver medalists are in this study, which which they actually found exhibited a, a greater level of dissatisfaction and heartache, even though they're on the podium. And so, what's the difference between second and third? They didn't win; they're still on the podium. They were still in the top three fastest, strongest best performers in sure. those moments. So in that moment, I, th- I think that's something to reflect on as coaches because if you are playing well or if you're not playing well, sometimes it has to do with how we perceive our performance, mm. okay, how we perceive performance. And so the lesson there might be for players or for coaches or for families that if you're not playing well, well, to, to what standard? Because second is better than third. Mm. And mm. yet in this study, we actually found that there's a high level of dissatisfaction because silver medalists are thinking about, I missed out. Yep. I wasn't close enough. I didn't do that. Third place also missed out but they're actually thinking i'm so glad i get to medal yes and so this perception that i think is is really powerful there so why is it good to play what's the science behind playing well it's that release of dopamine but i think part of that as well is if you're not playing well to your standard that we can actually train and work with players to understand that there are different ways of seeing situations we need like a gold medal emoji and a silver medal emoji and a bronze medal emoji that's something that uh, the iphone can come up with shortly it's really interesting you make that point the Olympics a couple of years ago now, Sam, the Australian basketball team won a medal for the first ever time. They won a bronze medal and they won the bronze medal simply on the basis of the fact that they won the bronze medal match. I just wonder if the same outpouring of love for the Australian basketball team, the Boomers, would have occurred had they have won their semi-final and then lost the gold medal match, gold medal match to the United States and won the silver medal. I just wonder whether we would have embraced them quite as much as we did because they won their last game rather than losing it. Yeah, that's so fascinating, isn't it? And this is what I'm saying, like silver medals are better than bronze medals. We could agree with that, right, Right. in terms of hierarchy of success. And yet if you're playing in the gold medal match and you lose, Mm. how distraught are the players? How disappointed are they? If you win the bronze medal match, Mm. how elated are you? Yeah. And so it, it feeds back to this particular study. The link here is really simple, that when you play well, release of dopamine... That doesn't necessarily mean that you need to win games. I think it's about how we see and and understand those situations. Let's wrap this up with one more point. Carpooling with teammates to practices and games. Sometimes that can be a bit traumatic. Am I going to get picked up on time? All of those sorts of issues. But you think it's fun. Once you're in the car, Hooky, very fun. Think of a group of adolescent boys or girls on the way to training or games. I'm thinking especially in regional communities where there is a lot of travel in order to play on weekends. The team bus, maybe? Maybe the team bus. So carpooling with teammates to practicing games, of course, is fun. It's it's rooted in a couple of things really quickly. Number one, social connectedness. We know that's connected to motivation. So when you do things with people and you enjoy it, you find enjoyment and purpose with the people that you're doing it with, very motivating. It, it makes you want to go back again, which means next week we'll drive and we'll take you, Ben. And then the week after, Ben, you drive. But there's almost some kind of magnetism to that. People are drawn to that. It's also very important for socialization. And so what does that mean? It's 
it's really about making sure that through sport, the development of the person, okay, so it might be personality is one example, our values, our worldviews tend to be enhanced through closer proximity together. So if you're a parent out there and you're looking for opportunities to help create environments to develop your child's personality and their overall persona, then the ways in which that can be supported is by seizing these opportunities to travel together to sport. I have a message for Amanda Vysek. Amanda, I've got an 80-second determinant of fun, and the 80-second determinant is recording fun podcasts with Sam Elliott. Always informative, mate. Another five down. We've probably got around about 25, 26 to go. Thanks for your company. Thank you, Hookie. We'll be back again with another bonus episode not too far away on Beyond the Club.